Months before its release, The Other Black Girl was on the tips of everyone's tongue. The thriller debut novel from Zakia Dalila Harris ripped readers this year and snatched all of our edges. Set in the white-dominated world of publishing, we are introduced to editorial assistant Nella Roger. Everything changes when Nella meets Hazel May McCall, the newest employee at Wagner Books. What appears to be a great addition to the workspace becomes a suspenseful trick in microaggressions and gaslighting. Zakia Dalila Harris talked to us about her book, her hair journey, and how her time in publishing served as inspiration for this year's most talked about book. I'm Denny. And I'm Veronica. And this is the Vulgar Jeans' podcast, so don't go away. Support for this podcast comes from Park Ave CDs, purveyors of new and used vinyl and CDs, clever gifts, books, and more. This year, Park Ave CDs celebrates 37 years. They'll also be celebrating Record Store Day 2021 on June 12th and July 17th. Visit in-store or online at parkavcds.com for details. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzy'sbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. We are your hosts. My name is Denny. And I'm Veronica. And today, today. <laughs> this interview is, I, I, I can't believe that we're given this opportunity every week to do these interviews. And today we have a very special guest. All right, so we have Zakia Dalila Harris on our episode today to talk about her debut book, The Other Black Girl. She is a Brooklyn-based author with a passion for writing and talking about Blackness, which we love, books and oldies music. She received her MFA in nonfiction creative writing from the New School and um, her BA from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, before becoming a Tar Heel, she was born and raised in Connecticut, where she cultivated a healthy appetite for cinnamon and fall foliage. <laughs> uh, Takia currently lives in Brooklyn. Um, her debut novel is from Atria Books in New York Times, a New York Times bestseller, and has current is currently in development with Hulu. Welcome to the show. <laughs> How are Thank you today? You. Thank you so much for having me. I am great now that we're chatting. So we're going to um, go ahead and just get started with our first question. Yes, um, but before that, we'll let, so for anybody that's been living under a rock, um, <laughs> we'll let her introduce her book and tell the juicy, the juicy parts about this novel. Go ahead. Yeah, so in a nutshell, with no spoilers, um, The Other Black Girl primarily follows Nella Rogers, 
who is a young editorial assistant. Um, she's been the only Black person working at Wagner Books, which is a prestigious, fancy-schmancy publishing house in New York City. Um, so she's really excited when Hazel, another Black woman, comes to work alongside her. She thinks, yes, happy, happy, joy, joy, I guess. Um, I have someone I can talk to about natural hair and microaggressions from all of my white colleagues who just don't get it. Um, but then, of course, that's not how it goes. Uh, and Nella starts to wonder if Hazel is a friend or foe. Um, and then also unfolding alongside her story are the stories of three other black women who are all also tied to the world of media uh, publishing. And all four of these women are bound by a very dark, sinister secret. Mm. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> if you wanna know, you definitely will need to read this you gotta book. gotta read. So um, be before before we ask that question, I just want to say that reading your book, it, it, every time Hazel's name popped up, it made me giggle because that's my mother's name. <laughs> it is Hazel May. <laughs> oh my God! Stop yeah. it! <laughs> and I was reading it, and it and it came up like the full part of the name. I just died laughing. I had to call her, and I'm like, "You're in this book I'm reading." That's so <laughs> that's funny. Like, what is it about? And I'm like, "Well, she plays." so <laughs> well, you you want to know what's funny is I got her name from my favorite um aunt who is no longer with us but I love her name so much and I wanted to keep writing her name <laughs> over and over again so I made her the other character and then well you know <laughs> just thank you for giving me that that moment like you're in a book <laughs> yes it's a great name <laughs> All right, on to, on to the reason why you're here. So let's come in. Yes. So you've taken this novel to feature a narrative of being Black in a corporate setting, um, especially in the publishing business. Why did you choose hair, solely um, Black women's hair, to be such a vital part of the plot? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, so right off the bat, since we're starting off, I should say that a lot of me is in Nella. Um, a lot of me is in a lot of the characters, but really Nella's experience of growing up in mostly white spaces, growing up in Connecticut, which is also where I grew up, um, being mostly around white people for a long time as a young person, and then meeting other Black people who weren't like my family um, when I was a teenager was like a big culture shock for me. Um, but at that point, I had already spent a decent amount of my younger years straightening my hair. So like I had a really big obsession with getting straight, like relaxing my hair when I turned 10, that was the age my mom said I could do it. Um, and that was like when Ashanti was like at Beyonce, they all had the long, you know, I mean, they're pretty sure they were weaves, but <laughs> I still wanted to have long hair like that and relaxing it would give that to me, I, I thought. Um, but of course, very quickly, I discovered that relaxing your hair is just as painful, actually more painful than having someone braid your hair, which is what I had been experiencing with my mom. And so anyway, I just knew after all of this, saying all of this, like hair is such a big part of my existence. Like um, it was a big part of me when I was younger, uh, when all my friends were hanging out at the pool, my white friends were doing all the cool things, like I would just kind of be on the side. Um, and then when I decided to chop all of my relaxed hair off when I um, was in grad school, and, like six years ago, um, I felt 
so empowered. And part of why I did it was because I wanted to feel more connected to like the black community looking back on it. I mean, at the time um, I had just moved to Brooklyn, New York was in full protest mode from Eric Garner, um, everything going on. And I know for me, that was like a big moment of realizing who I was and how, when I was younger, how that experience of being mostly around white people affected me and my perception of myself and my perception of my hair. So all of these things, I really was pouring into Nella because part of what, or a big part of what draws her to Hazel is Hazel's dreadlocks. Um, they're so cool to her. And um, despite how different their backgrounds are, like Nella grew up in Connecticut, Hazel grew up in Harlem, but they both kind of have that same experience of like knowing what black hair is like, what black natural hair is like and how much it is a part of them and how much it affects the way the world sees them. So, so that really seemed like such a, a thing that would pull them together, but then yeah, maybe not be as <laughs> much of a bonding mechanism for the two of them. <laughs> Your ability to take something so simple as the smell of hair grease and make it creepy as hell is like a chef's kiss, right? <laughs> Thank you. Um, definitely a chef's kiss to the suspense and thriller genre of literature. How did you decide that you would be introduced to Hazel in, in that manner? You know, it's funny because that scene was the very, very, very first scene I ever wrote for this book. And it actually stayed mostly the way it is. I mean, I've edited, I've tweaked it, but um, that scene in chapter one of Nella sitting in her cubicle, um, smelling the smell. I wrote that scene when I first had the idea for the book and I was writing it in my cubicle um, and really channeling what it was like to be in a space like that. You can't really see what's going on around you, but you can smell and you can hear and you know footsteps, you know who's coming around the corner just because you've gotten so used to being in this tiny little space. Um, with in regards to like the hair, and I was just wondering, I know you mentioned earlier about you getting a relax, relaxer at 10. Do you remember that feeling of getting that relaxer? Because to me, that in itself is kind of like, it's kind of like a horror story. Because I remember yeah. that moment. I didn't have uh, a relaxer when I was young. It, uh, it was a lot of strain and comb. And then we transitioned mm -hmm. to getting a jerry curl because I'm a child of the 80s. Yes. So <laughs> kind of like a relaxer, but a whole much longer yeah. process. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember that feeling of sitting there and I'm like, what is this that they're putting on my hair? Why does it burn? Mm -hmm. and why are we all doing this? Do you remember that that process? Yeah, you know, I I don't remember that much about it. I remember, of course, the whole don't scratch your scalp beforehand. Um, and I remember thinking like, oh, like, okay, whatever. Like I won't scratch. Of course I scratched, but I thought it would be fine. And then of course it wasn't, <laughs> it hurts so much. Um, but, you know, I don't think I really, really thought about it until I got older. I think because, so my mom had been doing it. My older sister, uh, who's five years older than me, had also been relaxing her hair. So I'd been around it. I'd go to the hair salon with my mom and I'd just be like hanging out while she's getting her hair done. So, so I'd seen it. It really wasn't until I got older um, when I was like, dang, like all these things I'm putting in my hair and on my scalp and like how much money all of it costs and how it hurts like it do, it doesn't feel great um and no judgment of course on, on people who do it I understand 
but um, I know for me, I just wasn't doing it for the right reasons. Mm, yeah, I, it's definitely a, a liberating moment when you don't have to do it anymore. But yeah. there are moments where I'm just like, some days I'm like, I just want to cut this off. You know, throw some stuff in there and just, you know, <laughs> that creamy crack, right? That's what he, call, he called it in uh, Chris, Chris Rock's documentary. So good. It's definitely, uh, it's definitely an addiction. <laughs> So you have an MFA degree in nonfiction writing. Yes. How much of what you've learned in that specific genre helped you to write the other Black girl? Oh, so much, so much. Um, I, I mean, my thesis that I wrote while I was there, I was called uh, The Weight of My Skin. And it was just a collection of personal essays, like most of which that are not finished. Uh, because I haven't come back to them, I'm a little nervous too. But a lot of the material in those pieces are in Nella's character and Kendra Ray's character, all of those, those things like, such as Cut My Hair Journey, um, which is a little bit in the book. Um, also just kind of that sense of like what the best way to protest is, what the best way to like bring about changes. That was something I was really thinking about as a young person who was shy, who wasn't politically active really until I was in my early 20s. And I felt like I needed to be because I was in a bubble for most of my life, um, even in college. Uh, and uh, all of, so a lot of those things that I really had to work through um, while writing those personal essays definitely helped me with this book uh, just to really create a worldview and a kind of, uh, I don't know, like a, a, a spine. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm quite curious on like, you know, you writing nonfiction and me reading it. Cause I was like, you know, I'm a fan of thrillers and like mystery books. Mm -hmm. that, that's where I live. That's like my favorite genre ever. So yeah. when we're reading this, I'm like, yes. So, <laughs> but when I learned you, you had um, an MFA in nonfiction writing. Not every non, you know, most nonfiction writers stay in nonfiction. So I was like, that's very interesting, and it and I think it made your novel really, really well written. Cause Thank you. Yeah, because it's like you know you deserve all the praise because it really connects with your readers. It really is very, very sincere. Mm -hmm. So thank you. So I just you know I I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. I, I actually, it's funny because I've been writing fiction all of my life and I started writing nonfiction in undergrad uh, when I took this, uh, a couple of classes uh, that were like mostly nonfiction based. And then I got waitlisted for fiction at the new school. So I was like, well, I got in for nonfiction. I might as well try this out. Um, and it worked out. <laughs> it actually worked out. Who the fuck? <laughs> very, very well. This novel, The Other Black Girl, was bought at an auction for a million dollars. A million dollars <laughs> by Atria Books. Will like, I don't even, I still, <laughs> like, who are you talking about again? I don't know. Who, who are we talking about? It's like, the words <laughs> I wrote on this page? <laughs> you sure? <laughs> We are very sure, man. We are very sure. <laughs> Will you walk through what was what was the process like? Um, yeah, this is normally how um, books are picked to be published. Yeah, 
I mean, um, you mean in terms of like the, just the, oh, how detailed, because I can get really detailed into the process. Well, I think for, for us, it's kind of like, I think in my mind, I was thinking, okay, when you write a book, you send your manuscript off to all of these different publishing houses. And then someone says either they want it or they don't. And so if you had like five people who say they want it, does it go into an auction at that point? Or do you just choose or is it a totally separate process? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so my was working with my agent, we felt like we're at a place for it to go out. And uh, we made a list of all the editors, um, well, not all of the editors, but all of the ones that seemed really like a good fit. And then, yeah, she she went out with it, uh, got a lot of responses, a lot of, lot of responses, had a lot of meetings, um, like crazy amount of meetings. And this was actually like weeks before COVID. So it's kind of wild to look back at it, uh, how many hands I was shaking at the time. But anyway, um, everything turned out okay, at least, you know, when I know. But um, so from there, yeah, that, that because there was so much interest, um, and it's, it's, it differs by book in terms of like whether or not it makes sense to do an auction, but um, for us, it made sense. And yeah, I mean, it was, it was hard. I, I mean, everybody was really enthusiastic about this book. Um, and the reception really blew me away. Cause like, first of all, I wasn't even expecting, like I thought, you know, one publisher, two publishers, if I was lucky, because I know from the other side, how hard it is. Like we rejected books that were so good for various reasons. Like we couldn't buy everything for various reasons. So like I went into it very much not expecting that. And so to have that reception um, and be at the point where I could choose who to work with was like, I just feel very lucky um, and very fortunate. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I had uh, such a good vibe and rapport from Atria, um, from my team there. Um, it was just a beautiful outpouring of support for the book and then wonderful conversation with Lindsay, my editor, Lindsay Segnet. And yeah, it, it's, again, it feels like years ago. <laughs> it feels like it happened to someone else years ago because of just how much has happened in between February, 2020 and now. This is a, an interesting conversation for us because we often ask writers of color, like the what it's like to write a book and be in that publishing process but to have someone who has also worked on the other side of it you definitely know like what the process looks like I'm assuming correctly so yeah yeah I'm sure that was something interesting to be on the other side but you I'm sure is it like you automatically knew exactly what you wanted when you went in to talk to these companies no, I mean, <laughs> I didn't, I really didn't. I, cause I'd never really had an editor. I mean, I've written book reviews um, and I had an editor at the Rumpus and that kind of way. And I've had people look at my work but I didn't really know what kind of relationship I want until I found myself 
talking to people. And after a few meetings, my agent and I were able, like she would ask me, like, I have to give it up to Stephanie Delman um, at Greenberger, my wonderful agent, because she really helped talk me through every single meeting because we had so many meetings. Um, it would have been so hard to do that without having someone asking me questions. Like, what did you think about this? But it was just like letting me randomly talk about random things for that entire time to her, just like text messages and stuff like that. So, so that was, yeah, it was a lot, but I think for me, what I really knew I needed, um, was someone, I mean, Lindsay had worked on Gone Girl, um, had worked on books that I really aspired for the other black girls who not be similar to, but just to have like that page turning element, to have that genre element, because I'd never set out necessarily to write a thriller although the idea I had of the two women working in publishing and one of them being weird like that was a thrillerish idea but she really helped me take it to that next level and I mean beyond other things she's just been amazing so well it's definitely good to have somebody in your corner to help elevate your work into a place that you didn't yeah. know that you could go and totally you 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 knock knock this yeah, out because I was we were you Thank know you. We were talking about this I was like you know what I'm like I mentioned like Gone Girl and it's and it's kind of like kismet like in my mind because mm -hmm. like, oh my god that made so much sense yeah and like you don't find a lot of like novels like this to me or written this way or like presented to the readers this way so I was like this is why <laughs> <laughs> thank you that means so much to me really <laughs> So, um, microaggressions. <laughs> From very happy to like. Yeah. <laughs> microaggressions are like a, like a glitch in the matrix. <laughs> um, was this concept hard to explain when it came time for your novel to be edited? Did you have people who were just like, I don't understand. Like, why is this part in there? No. I did it, you know, and I think I've also been lucky in that regard. Um, my editor understood it immediately, my agent, both, both who I should say are white women. Um, both of them completely understood and like hashtag believe black women, like no questions asked. Mm -hmm. um, and that is really important because again, I think having seen the other side of it, um, I mean, I've never worked on a book like this when I was working publishing, but I just know the environment and how um, just in general, Black writers, it's hard for it's harder for us to kind of break through without people wondering, like, who's the audience for this? Are people going to resonate with this? Those kind of conversations that are coded. Um, but that was never a thing really for me. And I'm hoping that this hopefully shows that again, believe Black women, um, believe Black people, but also these, these stories are important. We should be reading these kind of interactions that are not Black, that are not white. They're in this like gray, subtly racist space that's just as heavy and just can be even more frustrating than in a like, very uh, obvious kind of racist thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, we. I think it was um, Naima Coster that was on our show when we asked oh, a similar question, because she was like she had certain things in the book 
and they were sending it back and they were correcting it and she was mm. like no nope. it, it's supposed to be Good. this way so yeah it just made me wonder if you had that issue where they're just like well we don't understand this part so yeah no I I believe it I believe that um and it's it's good on her for for clapping back and saying no and and to a lot of authors other black authors who I've talked to who have had to navigate those things um it's it's hard and it's hard to keep your convictions but it's gotta do it <laughs> you gotta do it if you can mm -hmm. how was the the process of you going back to work with editors and publishers with them knowing like they were a big part <laughs> Um, sorry. <laughs> I'm talking about y'all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's so surreal. It's also meta. It's also meta. I mean, I, I think the thing for me um, that I that really stood out for me is I think that this book, because of the material it's about, um, the, the the conversations that are in the book. I do think that also had to do with my publishing journey, right? Like I think that because this book is so explicitly about uh, coded language and microaggressions in publishing, uh, I think it means that my my team, who I, I I know they would have done right by this book regardless, but I definitely think there's an added layer of like, okay, this book's about publishing. Like we have to get this right. We have to make sure that all of these things, um, and I mean the cover is one thing because again covers can be one of those struggles too that a lot of black authors have to fight for um a lot of things that would have been or could have been um negotiable for other books i think that i really didn't have to compromise for a lot of things and so again i keep saying <laughs> keep making it sound like i'm having the dream experience uh which i i kind of am um nothing's perfect but it, this is not this is not normal and i hope this becomes the new normal for other writers of color. I definitely same here. Same yeah, because I I think you know we because other writers that are other writers, um, other white authors would always be like, yeah, this and that, you know. And I wish mm -hmm. that is the dream for every for every person of color to be having the same experience, for it to be like easy breezy, mm -hmm. and. It, it's just really uplifting to hear mm. that you had that experience and you know yeah. it's like, you, like it's the light at the end of the yes <laughs> yes <laughs> totally atria I, lo I love you guys <laughs> it's a love letter to the atria podcast <laughs> surprise branded content no just <laughs> yeah <laughs> she gave you a shot <laughs> so it 2015, Starbucks had a campaign called hashtag race together, which was prompted after the killing of Michael Brown. Um, then three years when two black men were visiting a local Starbucks where were arrested, that prompted the stores to have a shutdown for an entire day for racial bias education. In your novel, you dealt with this topic within the Wagner Publishing Company. What was the significance that you wanted the readers to get about that flashback and do you feel those workshops really help mm. uh just to make sure i understand you mean like in terms of like training for yeah how do i feel about that i mean it's hard i think that so with this book with the other black girl i really wanted to 
point out all of, of course, like just all the messed up things, um, all the microaggressions, all the, the ways in which um, I think employees, specifically white employees and white CEOs can kind of hop on board trends just because they're trends and for public uh, approval. Uh, but I also think like society is is guilty of that too, in a way. I mean, I think that with social media, I'm like a big not, I really don't love social media, to be honest with you. Um, before the book, I was very much not on it, um, at least not publicly. And so, um, but I, I definitely wanted to get at all the ways in which we have these waves um, of like, there needs to be change. Like, let's, let's do these things. And those waves are so important, but oftentimes those waves end up just being waves and we go back to the way things were. And I think that these trainings and things like that are, are, are good, but um, I mean, they've, I think they've been popping up for a little while now. And it, I think clearly it's not trickling upward to the, the people who maybe should be having a little more like serious talks that are not just like role play, but are actual like, how are we going to make actual change? And maybe even, even though I hate, I also think quotas are like problematic, problematic and can be, uh, again, just tokenizing and all of those things. But I do think that until there are like strict guidelines and kind of I don't know, numbers, like, let's talk about numbers. Let's talk about money. How much money are people making? Like, how can we make other parts of this system better so that people who are starting out uh, feel like they can actually grow versus leaving? Um, because I think retention is another big thing too. And I don't know if just like checking off uh, this box saying I, I took this class is going to make a black employee feel welcome necessarily. I don't think that's that's enough. So I'm, I'm not sure if that fully answers your question, but it's hard because it's one of those things where it's like, then what is the answer? But I think that every workplace has a certain solution that does work better for them. And maybe some people do need training. Um, I, Cause I took, when I was at Penguin Random House, like there were employees that did it and talked to me about it. And we're like, I learned so much like older people, older employees. And I think that's really important too. So it's, it's I think really a case by case basis. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things where it's like the education process, you know, you hope someone is grabbing that information like it should be grabbed and held onto and used, right? Utilized mm -hmm. sometimes. Every now and then you have some people who just don't know what to do with it. Right, right. That's their journey, they'll figure <laughs> it yes. out. Yes. <laughs> Do you think that your your novel will be the catalyst of addressing issues such as race within publishing? Because I asked this because we had um, Mateo Escarapur on, and I know mm -hmm. that his novel, Black Buck, gets used a lot now within business corporations. Do you think that this will, will be something? I mean, I hope so. I know that, again, the, the conversations I was having just last February, before George Floyd, before Breonna Taylor, um, uh, with mostly white editors and publishing teams, not gonna lie, um, a lot of them were speaking out against how white the publishing industry is and telling me how they see either people they work with in this book or people or themselves, right? And so I think that the fact that we were able to have those conversations last year or a good sign. And I'm hoping that 
this will just be one kind of um, one moment that will build up to much more, many more moments where we can keep the conversations from just being conversations, but like actually turn it into change. Um, so we'll we'll see. I mean, I am always open to to talking with people and publishing about this book. Um, and I mean, just from my old coworkers who have read the book, um, they felt a lot of feelings reading it and felt like this was like something that, I don't know, really resonated with what they had seen in the publishing world too. So I'm hoping that this will kind of maybe scare people into, into wanting to change. <laughs> like, is that where, I, where I'm ending this thought on? I think so. <laughs> no, we're, we're, we're ending this thought on that this, this novel should not only be used in publishing, but maybe yes. also in schools. Mm -hmm. you know yes people, like high school um education mm -hmm. yeah or everywhere like you know as a as a supplemental read as we like to call it here <laughs> in in vulgar geniuses you know and with with a great story so you Thank you entertain you. yourself but also you drop the little nuggets <laughs> the so you know the seed turns into something great Thank get you. Get that knowledge. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we, um, I'm not afraid to admit this. We all have been guilty of being a Hazel or a Nella at some point in our life journey. In order to survive a certain situation or we have to adapt. Sometimes we have to do a more calculated move to hold on to our jobs. <laughs> How do you make sure that you don't fall into the trap of always being a Hazel. So if you mm. haven't read the book, this is the point that you got to turn this off and come back. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying really hard not to like do it because this book is just, yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. I think the thing I would say, the first thing that comes to mind is talking to people who came before you. Um, I think that because, okay, so two parts. So the first part I think is that I have spoken with a lot of older people who have also had their own Hazel experiences um, years ago. And so I think that's pretty telling. And I think having those conversations can make you feel a lot less isolated. Like kind of like, oh, just as like having conversations about working in corporate spaces, I would have was with my dad who did it in the 90s and like this like very similar but very different but very similar kind of things you know and I think that being able to talk about that is really important with them but I also think that just like getting some perspective from um, an older person or someone who has been in that position can I don't know just give you a path forward um, whether it's by you know trying to understand that we are all not drops in the bucket because that sounds really hopeless but like we're all just like pieces of this ever flowing ever moving kind of um chain toward change I, I, I don't know if I'm making sense but I, I think that like we are all working toward the same goal when I say we I'm thinking of the black diaspora, the Black community, I really think we are all 
working toward the same thing, which is to be seen as humans, just to be seen as people and given space to be as messy as everyone else. Um, and I think that once you see that, um, I, my hope is that you won't be a hazel um, <laughs> because by being a hazel, you're just, uh, I mean, I hate to say like you're pulling us all back, but it's just not a good look, mm. not a good look. Not at all. Because when me and Veronica were talking about it earlier, um, I am of Asian descent and there are a lot of hazels mm -hmm. in the Asian diaspora. <laughs> so when I was reading this novel and I'm like, you know, it's, it's, it's really heartbreaking that there's hazels. And I'm like, we don't need a hazel in this year or any, or any mm. other time. It just makes life really difficult. Yeah. Um, it, it kind of, you know, all the work that we've done is kind of like being destroyed. Yes. So, yeah. You got to push through those hazels, pull them, pull them to the side. Yep. Or burn. Yeah. <laughs> or burn. Yeah. <laughs> but also the thing is like, I think is to also like, if you're feeling hazily, like it is a normal feeling. It's not a good feeling to have, but it is a normal feeling. And I also think that that feeling comes from oftentimes white people. Yes. Um, and to know that you're, if it's anger or whatever it is, it's, it's misplaced toward the other people of, you know, if you're Asian or if you're black, it's not, it's not the place that, that it's not their fault. Like <laughs> the, the reasons why you were feeling hazily, um, not you specifically, of course, hypothetically, but the reasons why one might feel hazily are just far bigger than you and that other person. It goes to years and years and years of oftentimes, again, white supremacy. Yep. Colonization, white supremacy. Colonization. Yeah. Yep. All of it. But I like the verb hazily. Can we get <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna add it to the dictionary. Yes, yes, we gotta make it a color too, the Pantone. Yeah. <laughs> Pantone for 2021. Yeah. <laughs> Despite um, us having to live through this Panda Express right now, um, mm -hmm. your book came um, during this time and you know, it came to do what it needed to do which was it showed us that you don't have to leave your house for it to be a New York Times bestseller. <laughs> it did what it needed to do. So do you have any plans to go out and do public experiences for your book or are you going to remain mainly in the, in the virtual realm? Um, I mean, I am totally hoping to do public stuff this summer. Um, I did actually did a reading last week uh, at a place called Wet Spot in Brooklyn. Um, which was amazing because I haven't read in person since November before the book came out. Uh, and I love, I'm a one-on-one -on -one person. Like I have adapted to Zoom. I get it. It's great. I love that we can be doing this, but I also love to talk to people in person, <laughs> like booksellers and, and readers, those conversations you have after a reading with people who just like come up to you and tell you what they thought about your book. Like it's just such a different, it's such a different vibe. And so for sure, for sure, maybe in the fall um, and then hopefully in the UK too, we'll see. Yay, hopefully. that's so exciting. Going across the pond. <laughs> yes, yes. 
that book cover both of your book covers by the way are beautiful um thank you now i have to find the money to be able to start collecting all these <laughs> so i'm like everybody's coming out with these covers that are so badass it's now i need to go so and see if i can pretty. get that euro money <laughs> the pounds the pounds uh, with everything that you've done and obtained in this past year, it has been truly amazing to just watch within the last few months, see this journey. And your book was definitely a hit out of the park. What do you envision for yourself, uh, for your life as a writer in the years to come? Ooh, I love that question. I don't think I've gotten that question. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, um, a few, maybe it was months ago now, what is time? Um, a few months ago, my dad sent me a link to Colson Whitehead 60 Minutes interview, um, which was amazing. And um, just like listening to him talk. But the thing that I thought was so cool about him talking about just what he writes about, because all of his books are so different. Um, is that that I think that he has he has been in so many different spaces uh, as an author in terms of what he focuses on and I just admire that so much and having just written this one book um, that was multi-genre uh, I there are so many other avenues I could go down um, and there's horror there's thriller there's psychological psychological thriller there's just so many things and I really hope that I can have the space to just try a lot of different stuff I'm really excited really really excited about that part go fly run <laughs> the world your orca. <laughs> talk about this hulu deal yes yeah I love television I love it probably Me too and I love books so the fact that it's pretty tied for me as well, actually, <laughs> I probably shouldn't say that, but I'm a big TV person. <laughs> how did this come about? Like for you, did they reach out to you? How, how did this happen? Um, how did this come about? Uh, it happened all also during the auction uh, for the book. So it was around the same time. Um, and this was like literally bumping up right against COVID. Like I think we had a confirmed deal like two days before New York shut down, uh, <laughs> which is wild. But um, my, yeah, my agents had found me film TV agents by the time we were like going to like maybe our second, our second day of meetings for the book. Um, and then after that, I was on the phone with a lot of different people, a lot of different production companies, a lot of different potential co-writers. Um, all at the same time and um yeah it was it was great and I, I gosh sorry I'm like trying to remember every single moment but um the thing that was really great for me the best part because going into it I hadn't written this hadn't written this thinking I would have multiple publishers interested also hadn't written this thinking anything would come on the tv side like that was so far from my mind uh so to have people telling me like this resonates with them on the Hollywood side was pretty bonkers, but not surprising, I guess. Um, and then also to have my team, my production team, Temple Hill, tell me, we want you to be as involved in this project as you want to be. We want you to write if you want to write. Like, this is the world, you know this world. Like, 
go for it. And at first I was like, I don't know nothing, but also at the same time I was like, yes, I will <laughs> buy all the scripts. I will watch all the TV, dang it. I will make this my, my new project. And it's been really fun so far. I'm learning so much. I'm learning a lot that I had no idea about myself as a writer. And it's been really, really rewarding. How much control do you have in this, in this process? I have a decent amount of control. I mean, I, I, my, so I'm working with Rashida Jones on the script. Um, and I mean, we were working on the outline last year. We started writing the uh, pilot script a few months ago and I took the first whack at it and sent it to her. And then she sent it back to me. And so it's been like a really like collaborative experience, but very much like they want me to feel proud of what we create. So, yeah. <laughs> I think I just like fangirled a little bit, right? Because <laughs> we, we also do like, you know, we do shows here, we watch it, and then we do like episode per episode, like a podcast. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited to do yours. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm so excited. I think it's going to be real, like, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to like oversell it, but I think it's it's sounding like it's going to be really fun because it's all the characters, like I mean, Malika and Owen, and a lot of Wagner people that I couldn't really get into in the book as much because it's only so much space you can do. But the show, like the music, the outfits, the, uh, yeah, it's you're killing me here. <laughs> especially the, the the flashbacks mm -hmm. I know it's like going back into like the 80s and whatnot it's going to be really nice but what yeah. I think I, I personally would probably be more interested in seeing than anything is just the 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 New York side of it because it was such a pivotal character within the in the novel mm -hmm. and every time she was going to a different place be it Harlem or the hair cafe it was mm -hmm. like I well, I could see it in my head, you know, and so Thank I can't to be able to see it on the on the screen. So congratulations to you on, on that. Thank you. Thank you so much. So like we've established earlier, I don't, I'm afraid of everything that's scary, but I'll <laughs> read it because, you know, it's confined within my imagination. So do you, like, we were just wondering if you, if you like the thriller aspect or do you like horror um what are your top five favorite scary stuff Ooh. Film? film film wise film wise um yeah I love I love it I love horror so much I actually watch it far more than I read it to be honest with you um but yeah I mean these are not in particular order but uh Carrie by Stephen King had a big both the book and the movie but the movie, I, well, watched that for the first time when I was 15. Uh, uh, let's see what else. Go, get Out, of course. Uh, Night of the Living Dead. Invasion of the, the Body Snatchers. And then I think, wait, did I already get five? Was that five? That was four. <laughs> that was four. Okay. Um, and then I would also say the, I think I'd say The Blob which like oh. is in this weird space but I it's a lot of fun it's a lot of fun Classic right there <laughs> okay yeah okay. um now the we're, we're coming to the the end of our time together and before we let anybody go we like to put them in the hot chair and ask them what 
are their top five favorite books of all time? Oof. Okay. Hi, I have to say my list changes, my all-time list changes, but I think the first ones that I can think of at the top of my head are, um, oh gosh, where did it go? Oh yeah, I mean, Americana by Chimamanda and Gozi Adichie had such a big impact on me as a reader. Um, uh, oh my gosh, <sighs> where are all my books in my head going? <laughs> um, I'd also say Negro Land by Margot Jefferson. Uh, amazing work of nonfiction. I just, yeah, so good. Um, and let's see. Oh, White Teeth by Zadie Smith. For, read that for the first time in college. So good. Sula by Toni Morrison. And I would also say um, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. But there you go. That's a solid <laughs> list. You're giving us some some current, some some classic, <laughs> and it's definitely a good reading list to start with. So this is when we say goodbye. Thank you so much for being on our show and writing such a beautiful, beautiful book um, that I know I'm going to be giving all my nieces uh, and my sister and my cousins and. <laughs> Especially my mom, because I could just be like, this book, this book is about you, girl. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank yeah, you. Thank you so much. And, and, and we definitely wish you all the luck and prosperity that everything is to come uh, for you, you on this journey. So, and you're welcome to come back and talk yes, about whatever you whatever. want. Whatever. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Sorry. <laughs> We, we had tons of fun. Um, I can't wait for all the stuff that you would write next or if you would write nonfiction, fiction, I'm here for it. It's, it's, it was really, it, it's been a while since I've read something like this and it, it's what I needed like to break, you know, just a palate cleanser to empty out my mind. Cause this, this is the genre that I really live at. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is, this is like what my soul is like, you're reading something nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. That seriously has made my day. I am so, I'm really, I'm so happy to hear that. I really appreciate it. So and- Drink some rest, drink you some water. <laughs> just sit with yourself, think about this day and um, get ready to do it. I'm sure all over again tomorrow, but- <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Have a wonderful night. You too. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on Instagram at Vulgar Geniuses Book Club. Our theme song was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Sean Dammit. That's spelled S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. See you next time. Deuces.